Welcome back to Misunderstood. Today, we are going to talk about porn. If you turn on Netflix right now, it would be hard to miss Money Shot, the Pornhub story. Trending in the top 10 since its release, Money Shot, the documentary, is about the largest website in pornographic history and how it was started, the issues with consent that ensued, and the people at the center of it all. Today, we're speaking with Siri Dahl, who was featured as one of the main sex workers in the film about what is misunderstood and the taboo industry of porn. She's appeared in over 200 films since 2012 and is also a sex workers rights activist. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. So my first question is, what? Uh, how How did you get your name, Siri Dahl? That's not your real <laughs> Yeah, which is funny because they asked me that in the documentary and I just gave them like a joke answer. Um, what did you say in the documentary? I was, I said, I said like, it's my first pet's name and the street I grew up on, duh. Oh my God. <laughs> which is, I thought that was so obviously a joke because I gave them a real answer, but they only edited in the joke because they probably wanted some comedic relief in the middle of that. Right. <laughs> Someone on Twitter tweeted at me because they thought that I was being serious and I was like no what <laughs> oh, so you didn't come up with a name like that because my name would then be moose diamond so that wouldn't sound that's so bad. that's that would be a very interesting porn star name for yeah. sure yeah so how did you come up with your porn star name <laughs> yes the real story of how I came up with it is fairly straightforward uh my background my family's all Scandinavian um, so I'm like Swedish, Norwegian, and Danish. And when I was brewing, like hatching my plan to get into the porn industry in like late 2011, I, at the time I wanted to do, to be a one name star. You know, there've been porn stars in the past who have one name and no surname, like Stoya, Seika. Um, there's been a number of people like that. Um, so I wanted that. And then I wanted a name that represented my heritage and that could work in a lot of different languages. So I looked up common like women's names in Sweden and Norway and Siri was on most of the lists of like popular names. And I was like, that's perfect. It rolls right off the tongue. And so I made like my first Twitter account, bought a domain with that name. And literally like three months after I did that is when um, the first iPhone that had Siri on it was announced. And I was like, oh, but I already bought, spent all this money on domains and stuff. So I'm not changing it, boo. And of course, over the years, I started to realize that was bad for SEO. So ultimately, I, I did in 2020 add Doll as a surname. <laughs> Very cute. Well, I think it's a great name, actually. So you. tell me about your childhood. What did you aspire to be growing up? And how did you get into this line of work? Or what made you decide to do that? I've always been a performer type for sure. I was, I mean, I was begging my parents to bring me to auditions to like Annie, you know, when I was a kid. Um, and they they were as supportive, I think, as parents can be, but at working full time, like they were not going to be stage parents, you know, they were like, good, you should do what you, what you want and express yourself. But like, we're very limited in how we can like drive you around places all the time. So I was very into like theater. I was a very uh, extroverted person, always have been. Um, and I think like my youngest memories of like having a very strong feeling that I wanted to to do something like that. I was like, I want to do that when I grow up was I wanted to be an SNL cast member. <laughs> this is when I was like, you know, 11, 12 years old. That was that was the fully formed like ideal in my mind. Um, and of course, I at at that age, I didn't realize that I'm not like inherently a hilarious person. Like I would be a terrible comedian, like terrible. <laughs> 
I'm good at just making an ass of myself without any rhyme or reason, but that's not the kind of talent that one needs to do stand up and improv. <laughs> and, um, sorry, and go what ahead. Took you, no, what, but what took you into like, what was your first sexual experience or what got you into a sort of sexual path for performing? Yeah. And so that it really does kind of, for me, it, it's like a natural flow of how I went from being, you know, an extroverted kid who always wanted to try new things and was always in whatever way, looking for some way to like express myself creatively. Um, and of course, as I became an adult, I, I think what's interesting about my story that I, I think it's actually more common than a lot of people realize with sex workers, um, but it doesn't get talked about a lot is like, just because you decide to do sex work doesn't mean that you were like hypersexual as a teen. Like I was effectively celibate as a teen. I didn't even have sex for the first time in my life until I was 18 years old. Um, I, what I was though, was curious. I was a very, very curious teenager. And I would, I read like all the books I could get my hands on about sex. I, I wanted to know more about sex. I wanted to be educated about it. And, uh, literally one of my childhood books is called, uh, deal with it. It's from this website called girl.com G U R L in like the late nineties. That book was my manual. I read everything in it and it had very detailed and medically accurate information about sex. So <clears throat> while I had like how to do it positions, like, what do you mean? Yes. It was like tips on safe sex, like tips on consent. Like it was really ahead of its time for being a book that was published in, I think like 98 or 99. Mm -hmm. um, and I loved that book. I bought it with a Barnes and Noble gift card that I got for Christmas <laughs> when I was like 11. And, you know, <laughs> Wow. My parents were like, looks, looks cool. It's not like they sat there and looked at it. If they had actually read it, they might've been like, this is a bit advanced, but they didn't. And honestly, I don't think that's bad because what I learned by being so curious and wanting to know as much as I could really about sex at a, like, I wouldn't say a young age. It was like a natural age, you know, when you're hitting puberty and you're curious. Mm -hmm. um, what I learned is that I basically I had such low expectations for becoming sexually active that I had zero desire to do it. Like I had this under, I remember being a teenager and like having crushes on people in high school and really having no interest in like dating or having sex or even really like, I think I, I made out with like two people wow. <laughs> in my teen years because I just had this sense of like, I don't feel like I'm fully ready for that. Like, I definitely don't feel like I'm ready for, for full on sex at all. And even when I did do a little bit of like fooling around, it was, I was like 17, much older than most of my peers when, when they had started experimenting sexually. I was going to say that underlying all of this was also my developing like sexual identity that I, you know, I got teased friendly, not like bullying, but like my, my friends in high school would call me lumberjack in like a teasing kind way. They weren't being queer phobic, but I did, I wore flannel all the time and I had short hair, I had a pixie cut and I never wore makeup. So like, I just looked like a lesbian <laughs> when I was a teenager, but I didn't identify that way. Like it, I didn't identify that way. I had never come out as gay to anyone in my family. Um, but I mean, I think my friends knew something about me before I did, because shortly after I graduated high school and started to like feel more comfortable, like getting away from home, you know, away from from like feeling like I had to explain things to my parents. And that's when I fully started to realize like, oh, 
I'm attracted to women and men. And now that I feel like I can admit this to myself, you know, I started experimenting more with dating. Um, and it wasn't until like my early 20s when I was around 2021 20, that I did fully get into experimenting sexually and wanting to try new things and have sex with different kinds of partners. And, you know, I kind of look back and jokingly refer to that as like my slut phase. But it was more than that to me. It wasn't, it was, it was a process of self-discovery. Mm-hmm. And it that is what led me to want to do sex work and to do porn was realizing that there was an opportunity in this in the adult industry that would allow me to explore the limits of my own sexual uh, personality in a in an environment that is uh, more safe and controlled than like having sex with strangers for right. sure. And that also would allow me to express myself creatively. Um, could be a job for me that I thought, you know, I would probably be good at that because I'm already in ex like, well, at the time I would have said um, extrovert, but now I also use the word exhibitionist because that is when I did start doing porn, I learned very quickly that I I do have exhibitionist uh, tendencies. One of the things I like about what I do is the feeling of being observed or seen, you know, Interesting. Okay. So did you have a regular job when you finally went into porn? So I'd had, I'd worked, you know, I'd had jobs here and there since I was in high school. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's not like I was still in college too. So they were really like part-time side jobs. None of them, this was not, uh, I would say that the first real career that I had was when I started in porn at 23 and a half. And when your friends and family found out that this was your new career, what were their thoughts? They were very upset. They were, well, initially they were upset because I hadn't told them the real reason that I moved to California. I had made up some other lie. I had said that I was like, oh, I'm moving to California because I got accepted to transfer to the different location of the place where I was working. Um, And my intention was to go out because I was living in Texas before that. So uh, my family, everyone was all in Texas at the time. And I, my intention was to move out to California to at least get my first couple professional shoots under my belt. And once I knew for sure how I felt about it and that I felt confident it was going to stick, then I was going to tell my family what I was really doing in California. But I should have known better because this is how everything tends to go, right? I didn't get the chance to give them my like well thought through statement about my career choice. Um, Someone that is friends with someone else that I went to like high school with uh, heard some rumor through the grapevine and immediately told someone in my family. So they all found out when I'd only been out in California for like a month, like my first professional shoot that I had filmed hadn't even been released to the public yet. And everyone found out. So they were pissed. And I think, you know, that was this is 20 early 2012. Uh, so 10 years ago that all that happened and it was a a mix of them being angry that I was doing porn at all for one but I think a a lot more of their anger and frustration was because I had lied to them about it right and that made it so much worse and what's your relationship with your family now it's fantastic now um you know it's been a journey uh 
and we we might get into questions that delve further into this little segment, but I think it's very relevant to you know the development of that relationship and my family's rel like relative acceptance of what I do for a living. And I will say, people some people in my family don't love it still, but they at this point respect me as a person and they accept my choice, even though it's not the choice that they would prefer, if that makes sense. But I love that for you. <laughs> yeah. But I did retire. I, I, I started in porn in 2012, was actively performing for three years. And in the year 2015, I announced that I was retiring and I moved across the country and I was completely out of the industry for five years. Um, didn't touch it, didn't film anything. Like I had deleted the, all my socials. Uh, what, what made you do that? You became a civilian again? I became a civilian again. Yeah, that's that's what people in the adult industry we call non-adult workers, civilians. Oh, really? Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, what made you do that? It was a comb. It, it, well, the the there were several reasons, but honestly, the biggest one was that I was in a really terrible and abusive relationship mm -hmm. um, that had started before I had gotten into the adult industry, and so the person that I had been with, he had been alongside me while I was building this career for myself. And he knew everything about me personally. He knew everything about my business and how I ran my business. And when the abuse started to get increasingly worse and I started going to therapy and realizing like I have to extricate myself from this horrible codependent abusive relationship, I realized that um, my, my career would be the collateral damage essentially because there was no way that I could see myself divorcing him because we we were married. Um, there's no way I could see myself divorcing him and creating the life and the space that I needed for myself to be able to heal while continuing my career because he already had his hands, his little claws so deep into it. So I was like, I, you know, at the time I was thinking, I'm just going to have to throw away my whole career and like move away and start over again to get away from this person. Because if I try to keep my career in porn, I will never get rid of him. Like he will take me to court, try to say that he's, he owns 50% of my business or something. And like it, I just didn't have the capacity to deal with all that. So I made a hard decision and it, it turned out it was the right one because <laughs> so I honestly of, think I needed the five years to myself for mental health anyway. Good. Okay. And you're out of that relationship and you've moved on. Yes. <laughs> okay. So I want to get back to your first experience in um, the adult film industry. Do you remember making your first movie? Mm -hmm, I do. What was that like? It was very fun. It was so, it was such that a crazy day. I would have thought, weren't you nervous? I wasn't super nervous. I had like, I, before I, um, actually got out to LA and started filming stuff, I had like gone to swinger clubs to like, I'd gone to Europe and like watched, uh, like a sex performance on stage at one point. So I'd been in like those sexually charged environments a few times before to the degree that like, I felt like I got this under control. So you'd seen performances <laughs> of other people, so to speak. So you knew mm -hmm. kind of what to do. Had you seen, had you watched porn? Did you know what to expect yeah. what to do? Yeah. Yeah. I'd watched a lot of porn. Okay. <laughs> um, I will say that the kind of porn that I uh, immediately started performing in wasn't really the kind that I consumed. I would okay. say that's still true today. Tell me more about what you mean by that. Um, well, as a, as a 
identify as bisexual or queer. Um, either term is fine for me. But uh, I never had much interest in watching um, extremely like heteronormative porn. Um, for I mean, both because the people that are typically featured in those aren't necessarily the kind of people that I would be attracted to, but also just because of like sort of the gender role and like and like these dynamics playing out, I didn't always feel like a connection to that. Okay. Um, so most of the porn that I was consuming prior to getting into porn myself was exclusively queer porn, which is a, like a whole different category. There's a lot more overlapping currently now in the industry between like all different kinds of content creators and people of different genders and orientations blending together when we make our content. But back in 2012, that was very much not the case. So what is it like making gay porn? Sorry. What, no, that's okay. What what is it like making a movie and being on a set like that? Like I can't imagine even people watching me have sex. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine what it's like. And I saw <laughs> you in the film and it, and parts of Money Shot, they show you making a porn. So yeah. and I was sort of cringing watching this happen because <laughs> You know, you're with the two guys and I'm like, how do they get in the mood with all these people there? And it's you're getting forced. secondhand anxiety. Yeah. And I was just like sweating for you. I just <laughs> it's like and the lighting's not good and there's no music. And oh, God, you just met, it looked like you just met those people right before. I mean, and I didn't know if that was better or worse, if you knew them before or if you didn't. I don't know. You you tell me what you <laughs> <laughs> Some, sometimes, I mean, I've been around long enough now in the industry that usually when I'm working with someone, unless they're new to the industry, I already have worked with them or I know them online. Like I follow them on Twitter and I understand their presence or the kind of person they are generally enough uh -huh. that it's, it feels like there's a rapport that exists. So it's, it's fairly rare that I work with someone I've never worked with before now. Um, but like going back to that, the first scene I shot was for a company called Reality Kings, which is, it is owned by MindGeek, the company in the documentary. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a very easy day. It was like, as at the time, I didn't have any point of reference, of course, but looking back now, I'm like, that was one of the easier scenes. Like they definitely knew like, oh, it's her first scene. Like we will make this, they made it as easy as possible. The male talent was, a, he's a Canadian performer named Voodoo. Um, he's not really performing anymore, um, but he was absolutely wonderful, like respectful, was very helpful for me, like helping me understand like why in in porn you see people having sex in a certain position, you know, and it the way that the bodies are arranged in porn tends to look way different than it would in real life, like for like a Meaning missionary. <laughs> Right. And that's because you have to hold your body in a way so the camera can see the action. Oh, right. Right. Okay. <laughs> you know, it. yeah. You don't want to block the light or, you know, create an angle that the camera can't see anything that's happening. Right. Um, and a lot of, especially with straight porn, a lot of the positions are also meant to sort of put the, the woman on display mm -hmm. and to minimize the, uh, the, the male body being visible or like blocking the woman's body or in front of the camera. And that's, that, that's a part of this whole thing that I was saying about like some porn is very heteronormative, which right. isn't my style personally. Um, I'm 
more than happy, obviously, to perform in those, but they're just not necessarily what I want to watch. Right. So, and how much of this is pure acting? Like, are you just like groaning and making the moves to get through it? And is it just so painful and awful? Or are you like totally enjoying it and having an orgasm most of the time? Oh, for me, um, it's it's very little when it comes to the the sex part, because I, I do scenes that are scripted where there is like a level of acting there or character building. Right. Um, and then there, so it's kind of depends on the type of scene, because if it is like a character driven scene, then I might literally be acting during the sex, because some scenes, the whole point is that they want us to remain in character for the entirety of the scene, including the sex. I would think that's almost easier than being you. Um, It is. It's kind of it can't it can't it depends on the character, I guess, or what the storyline is, because for me, it's like. It's it's harder for me to stay in character when I'm also like really enjoying the sex, because then it's like that subconscious like enjoyment like body language and sounds might come out and I'm and then I'm like oh no my character wouldn't do that like <laughs> like I'll make little like guttural growling sounds sometimes during <laughs> like in real life during sex and so like if I'm playing a character that like would never do that I have to kind of censor myself in a way that I don't usually for other types of scenes um but I would say that you know with the ex exception of those character driven things like all the sex that I have or work on camera is really is pretty much the way I am in real life like sometimes I might exaggerate it a bit uh for the viewer you know or to drive a point home more like like for example I don't really say like oh I'm coming or like I'm about to come like I don't really say that in real life mm -hmm. especially not with my actual partner because we've been together for years and I don't he doesn't need me to tell him when I'm getting close. He knows. Right. <laughs> but in a porn scene, of course, like, you know, usually it's almost like a courtesy to say that because then it alerts, literally it tells the camera crew like, oh, she's close to coming. Now let's shift and get the angle of like the face or like whatever. So it's kind of communicating with everyone in the room and not just the person that I'm actually having sex with in that moment. Right. So now I've always wondered this about porn stars. How are you, and tell me if I'm asking too close of a question, but how are you intimately with your boyfriend as opposed to on screen? I mean, are you a totally different person? I would definitely not say that I'm a totally different person, but there is a lot more, there's so, so much more intimacy with the sex that I have with my, my partner. Yeah. Um, there's like a shorthand, like a sexual shorthand that we have with each other where just like a certain type of vocal inflection or physical touch will communicate a whole bunch of things that obviously someone who's had sex with me twice would not understand. Right, right. But my demeanor on screen, whether I'm having sex with my fiance or with someone I met last week and we got hired for a scene together, my general demeanor is pretty much the same. <laughs> so you're dating somebody. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We got engaged uh, in like October and we've been together for four and a half years, just about. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, now, obviously this hasn't, doesn't sound like it's had an effect negatively on your relationship, but I can see why it might on some relationships. Um, how mm -hmm. has it been okay on yours and how does he not get jealous when you're <laughs> with other people? Well, Okay, so it helps that he is also a performer of mm -hmm. a sort because he's never 
he doesn't really perform in like studio stuff. So I would say that classifies him as like maybe more of an amateur performer um, as opposed to a professional, like a studio performer. Mm -hmm. um, part of why he hasn't done a lot of studio work is because he's got me, <laughs> you know, like we, especially when COVID started and everything was shut down and I had just come out of retirement and shot my like big comeback scene and announced that I'm returning to porn in January, 2020. And so I've got, I had three good months and then COVID hit, everything shut down. So I couldn't go out to LA for my shoots anymore. Um, and, at, and by that point, my partner and I hadn't ever, like he, he hadn't had sex on camera <laughs> with, with me or anyone else in his life. And he was already aware that, you know, I was making my porn comeback and he was like fully supportive of that. But then I, I sat him down and I was like, how would you feel about performing in some scenes with me on camera? Like, you don't even have to show your face. Like, you know, we don't have to go too crazy with it, but like, it would be great for me to be able to get some content for like OnlyFans since mm -hmm. I have no other options currently until the pandemic's under control. And I really underestimated him <laughs> because I was like so careful about positioning this question. And he, it was like, he barely let me finish the sentence and he was like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so yeah, uh, he, he was like my personal uh, male performer on camera. And over the years, as he's gotten to know the industry more and more and like met other people in the industry and he comes out to LA with me on my trips often, like now he does make his own content as well. Um, and I think I also forgot to say this because it's completely relevant, but even early on when we first started dating, we agreed right off the bat that we didn't want to be monogamous. Oh, interesting. And, and that was like a philosophical agreement that we had that wasn't that we both felt it wasn't the goal of our relationship was to be monogamous forever. We both felt like we wanted it to be open and so it it did, we kind of already had like a good basis for like the type of relationship that we have now because it kind of began that way. Yeah. I think as long as you're open and honest about your agreement going into it, then you're not stepping into any potholes going forward. Exactly. Um, you touched on something, the difference between a porn professional and the elevated amateur kind of going into the fact that especially with COVID, everyone became a quote unquote professional with only fans mm -hmm. talk to me about literally what the difference is. And then I want to get into how I can become an only fan star. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there's a couple ways that you could define it as someone who has, um, spent, you know, the better part of, of 10 years, um, working in studio productions, as well as making my own content. There is a different approach when you are a performer who works with studio productions. And the biggest difference there is the amount of infrastructure provided for the creation of that content. When you go to a, a set for a studio, like they, studios have bigger budgets. Um, you're going, you, you, there's a make, it's like a Hollywood film, you know, not, not that big of a budget, like a Hollywood film, but bigger than an individual would have making their own content. So it's a far more of a production. You're getting, you're seeing the full professional like production end of things from start to finish. Um, there's, you know, a lighting guy, there's a sound guy or girl, like people of all genders working behind the scenes. But um, yeah, so you, it's like working with a real film crew as opposed to uh, on a more amateur level where you're doing self-created content or, you know, 
a lot of amateurs do produce very professional looking content, but it's just not quite the same thing as like working for a studio. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a, a big thing that I have that's like, that I see being a difference is uh, just ge geography, really, because most of the porn production in the US is taking place in, in and around Los Angeles and Las Vegas. So for people who are content creators uh, or who are making porn, whether they consider themselves amateur or professional, um, it's there's not really a production center in, well, Miami actually does have production too. I forgot that one. But outside of those three, three cities, there's not really a lot of production happening. So if you are producing, you're probably in a very small community and working literally by yourself or with like a, just a small crew of, of people that are all the same people working all the time. Um, so now talk to me about OnlyFans. Like this is like the place where people are quitting their nine to five job and they are selling everything from their body to just like pictures of their feet to mm -hmm. pay for literally the mortgage on their house. Tell me how to do that. So I don't have to work anymore. <laughs> The biggest misconception actually about OnlyFans is that like people will like make an account and start putting content on there and just like make tons of money like right off the bat. I will say that there you, there was more evidence of like that actually happening early on in COVID because of how much OnlyFans blew up when everyone was at home, like on their computers all day. So that totally made sense. But like, I think that that skyrocketing usage of OnlyFans has not plateaued, but it's evened out. Like it's more like a normal now <laughs> than it was there in 2020. Um, but I think it's a, it's definitely a misconception that it's like, oh, anyone can do it on OnlyFans. It's like a lot of people can do it. Like there there is literally their space for everyone. Like it it's not so important like what body type you have or like if you're like supermodel gorgeous or whatever, like there's a place for everyone. But what doesn't get talked about a lot is like how much work it is because OnlyFans doesn't have any like real useful discover feature. So if you're a creator who wants to make money on there, the only way that you will get eyeballs on that content and get people to actually buy it or subscribe is if you bring your own traffic, which means you basically have to start with having a, a lot of followers on some exactly. other platform, like on Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, or something like that, because you have to drive traffic from an external source to your OnlyFans. Or you have to set yourself apart. Like for you, you offer dick ratings, which I think is very uh, entrepreneurial. Tell us about that. It's very funny because I, um, when I first started out um, on my OnlyFans account, I did not initially offer dick ratings and I started offering them when fans started asking for them very, very frequently. And it never in a million years would have occurred to me to voluntarily start telling men on the internet, like, you should give me money to look at a picture of your dick and give it a rating. But it turns out a lot of men really wanted me to do that. So I standardized it and, and figured out a good pricing model and started just offering that as a, as a typical sale through my OnlyFans. And it is still one of my top selling items on OnlyFans is the dick ratings. So um, I love it. <laughs> it's very fun for me. And also I'm very honest about my dick ratings. And I'm also very honest with my fans about the fact that most of the time what I'm rating isn't necessarily the dick itself as much as like the context around it 
Meaning like the one, Well, one guy, okay. So here's, so like an automatic like zero on a dick rating for me would be if a guy sends me a dick pic where he's like standing over the toilet and I can see the toilet bowl. Like, why would you do that, sir? Oh, I've gotten that. That's, he has to have some nice surroundings. Yeah. I'm like, you got to put effort in. Don't send me your weird toilet pic. Like, oh my God. I <laughs> um, wait, so talk to me for a second about what kind of content you were doing for, um, and what kind of money you were making up until the point that you found out about Pornhub and mm-hmm. that site. Like, explain to people how helpful Pornhub was in you making money. It was a great source of side income, I would say, even though it has incredible traffic on Pornhub. Um, back on the model hub side, which we talk about in the documentary, which is the like, it's tied into the Pornhub site, but model hub is kind of the sub site that allows models to just sell their own clips. Like, so like you charge whatever you want for one video and the person pays with a credit card and they download it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one never was as huge of a moneymaker for me as OnlyFans. Um, and I would, I think most other performers I've talked to have said the same. But what it was, was consistent. Um, it was very consistent because of how much traffic is visiting Pornhub every day. And also it was fantastic for marketing because it would tie in. So I could cut a trailer of one of my videos. Like I would have like a 40 minute sex scene that I filmed that I'm gonna sell for like $15. And I could cut a two to three minute trailer of that same sex scene, put it for free on Pornhub. And then within the settings on my clip that I've uploaded for that trailer, there's a box that says, is this video for sale on Model Hub? And you check yes. And then you pick which video correlates to the trailer. So anyone who watches the free three minute video on Pornhub automatically sees a button underneath it that says, you can buy this clip, the full version. So it was really, really good for so you would give a trailer to like wet their appetite and then they exactly. could watch the full one if they paid for it. Exactly. And, and it was fantastic. And it was, like I said, I didn't uh, net as much income from Model Hub and Pornhub as I have consistently from OnlyFans, hmm. but it was consistent and like it wasn't enough to pay my mortgage every month, but it was enough to certainly help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And like, and and that's gone and we've never gotten that back. Not ever since uh, December, 2020 after MasterCard made their decision. Yeah. So explain to listeners and viewers what happened there um, and the whole Pornhub issue and, and, and what happened for people that haven't seen the the show yet, the documentary yet. Mm -hmm. So in December, 2020, early December, um, a New York times uh, columnist Nick Kristoff wrote an op-ed, an opinion piece that was published uh, about Pornhub. And he quoted me, he quoted two words I said in it. <laughs> um, but essentially it was the adult industry has long viewed it as like more of more of like a, a hit piece, mm-hmm. um, which isn't which is not at all to take away from the actual real stories of victims who have had like illegal content of theirs shared online. So much as when we say that as, in, as an industry, we're really referring to the um, the way that that article was shared and portrayed like it's a piece of investigative journalism when it was an opinion piece that had no fact checking or sources in it at all. And the main voices that were platformed saying that uh, Pornhub needed to be censored and like lose their payment processing capability 
are this organization called Exodus Cry, which is very much a part of the conversation in the Netflix documentary. Um, so the effect of that article, it was just like a, a bombshell hit. And uh, my, my Twitter exploded. Everyone's Twitter was exploding. Uh, it was really rough. And there were just immediately calls for uh, Visa and MasterCard to pull out of their relationship with Pornhub, uh, which which happened pretty quickly. It was like, I don't remember exactly how long, but it was like days or like a week later that MasterCard terminated that relationship they had with Pornhub, which just the immediate effect of, of that was that people like me who sell our content on there lost that entirely. Right. Um, so the story was yeah. called The Children of Pornhub, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it, what the intent, I think, was to talk about, it, it was totally different than people like you who, who were putting uh, your content on the site on purpose. But yes, consensually. Some, yeah, consensually. But there were um, some people whose content was on the site that was put on there mm -hmm. not consensually. And it was, you know, pictures of them that were naked or videos of them mm -hmm. that they had sent to former boyfriends or people they, they had been raped by allegedly or whatever. And that stuff was on there, not consensually. And, mm -hmm. and they were underage apparently. And they, you know, this was what the article was about. So the backlash to shut down Pornhub became so bad that MasterCard and Visa, I think pulled their, um, credit card processing, um, with the company. Right. And the backlash, mm -hmm you know, affected sex workers because this was your livelihood. So not only yes. did it affect the people that it meant to affect, which was, you know, the people that were involved in the sex trafficking and the kids, but it also affected people that wanted to be there. So it was a question of consent. So that's what the, the documentary is, is about. And um, I think you did a really good job on that, you know, um, explaining, you know, the difference between sex trafficking and sex workers and why you guys needed it. And, and, you know, and the difference I mean, consent is a really big conversation piece that people should be having. And and the topic of pornography is so taboo for a lot of people that mm -hmm. you know, people don't want to hear all sides. But of yes. course, when kids are involved um, and things are out there without your consent, I think people forget all the other parts of the puzzle that you don't want to shut down, right? Correct. So, so yes. there were so many parts to it that they just wanted to shut down all parts <clears throat> to it. Um, yeah, people uh, should see the documentary because I think it's very good. Please, I've been telling my friends like, look, I because I'm in it and I got the early screener copy in February. I've watched it so many times. I think I've watched it ten times by now, <laughs> and um, I literally, I know, I already knew all the facts of this thing going into it, and ever, still, every time I watch it, I like have a new thing that I realize about it, or something hits me different. Yeah. And there, it really is, there's, it's a 94 minute documentary and there's so much information packed into it that if you watch it once, you literally might just like not grab onto something. Yeah. So I don't, who really watches documentaries twice? Maybe I'm just a weirdo, but. No, I mean, I get it. Like, I think it's really interesting and people, you know, I'm glad it's out there because people should, should definitely watch it, but you weren't co coerced into making your content, right? Oh, not at all. No, I was, I was over the moon about finally like getting to do something that I had wanted to do for like a couple of years. Cause when I first had the idea of doing porn, I was like 20 and I didn't actually take any action on that until I was 23. So I was like, yes, my dreams are being realized. And, you know, 
I think there's something to be said maybe for like making a choice, like performing in adult films when you've had opportunities outside of graduating high school and you've had a little bit of lived experience. Like I, you know, I don't want to sound too judgmental saying it. Cause I, you know, I have friends in the industry who started like when they were 18, right out of high school and they're doing well and they still love what they do. But I've, I've seen enough examples as well of people who, who jump into it without mm -hmm. thinking too hard and then leave the industry because they're unhappy. And uh, a lot of the time, from what I've seen, it's not so much that they had like explicitly bad experiences in porn. It's that they weren't mature enough to literally handle the stigma that comes with being a sex worker. It is a lot. And it takes a, a whole lot of emotional maturity. And like literally every, I tell every, everyone in general that everyone needs therapy, but sex workers especially need access to like non-judgmental therapy and counseling. Uh, Cause it can be so much to deal with what society kind of puts on us, you know, especially when you're not prepared for it. Absolutely. What do you think is the most misunderstood thing about your industry that you want people to know? Um, Man, that's a really good question. Uh, cause there's, I guess, cause there's so many, um, but I, I think kind of like, you know, piggybacking on one of the themes of the documentary or something that's kind of underlying that doesn't, is never said explicitly, but I feel like you get the vibe of this from watching Money Shot is that uh, sex workers are not a monolith. A lot of people, especially those who like are against porn or think that it's like inherently bad in some way, talk about porn and sex workers like like we are this monolith you know um it it kind of like comes across that way even when they read the like text of the civil suit case mm -hmm. against Pornhub like sex workers are all different kinds of people from all different backgrounds the the range of income that you see just in sex workers who are doing like online content like porn stars is is wild so it's just I, I just tell people like you have to you have to remember that we're all we're all human just like everyone else in this world and you it doesn't really serve anyone well to make sweeping generalizations about what sex workers are like or what we do you know I, I think a common one for example is like that a lot of women who do sex work like got into it because of some form of abuse that led them there or that like they're abused because they're doing sex work now and that one's always been one of the top like stereotypes to bother me because like if you are even remotely paying attention to like the conversations in our culture of the last like couple decades then you might have heard the statistic that one in five women is abused in her lifetime so I whenever people tell me that I'd like look around and I'm like okay if one in five women is a victim of abuse like then this statistically doesn't make sense because if you're telling me that all sex workers choose this because of abuse, then shouldn't one in five women be sex work? I'm like, no, that's not, it's not a cause and effect. It's just, yes, abuse unfortunately happens more than it should. And it doesn't happen because someone's a sex worker. It happens because misogyny. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, with with Roe versus Wade being overturned, you've become an activist. How has it made you um, change on how you've performed? Um, it hasn't changed personally how I perform because I already 
knew that I didn't want kids and I've kind of lived my adult life with that assumption. So like when it comes to having sex with other people on film, like I've, I always have had an IUD and I just got approval from my gynecologist to actually do a tubal ligation surgery next year, which I'm very excited about. Mm. So it doesn't impact me deeply on a personal level as a performer, Mm. but um, the community of performers and adult is quite large and uh, also leans pretty young as well. So like, it's just extra not fair for women who are sex workers to have to put up with this additional risk of like potentially not being able or allowed legally to make your own choices about your body and your healthcare. Um, And I mean, I think that bodily autonomy is very deeply intertwined with the concept of sex work and, and being a sex worker. It's like consent takes precedent over all else. So Mm -hmm. my bodily autonomy is incredibly important to me. And, you know, I, I wish that it were important to everyone in this world, but clearly that's not the case. Yeah. Um, my final question to you is if you weren't doing this for a living, what would you be doing? Um, Oh, that's fun. I think I would still be doing something creative. Um, I don't know. The sky's the limit. You know, when I was in college, I was briefly a radio TV film major because I was like, I want to be, I want to be the next Ira Glass. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, maybe that, maybe I'd be uh, working my way up the ladder at NPR. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right. Where can people find you? Tell me your social media platforms. I'm on uh, most socials. So like Instagram and Twitter at the Siri doll, S-I-R-I-D-A-H-L. Um, and then just SiriDoll.com or do you just Google my name and all my links come up. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I wish you the best of luck. I think you're great. And Thank you so much. Rachel. Watch Netflix uh, money, money shop. Okay. Take care. Mwah. Thank you. Mwah. <laughs>Thank you for listening to the misunderstood podcast with host Rachel Yucatel, executive producer Kelly Brink. If you have an episode suggestion or would like to reach out for collaboration and sponsorship opportunities, email us at info misunderstood podcast at gmail.com. That's info misunderstood podcast, all one word at gmail.com. Be sure to like and subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts and leave us a five star rating and review because it helps the show so much. Watch full videos of each and every episode of Misunderstood on YouTube at Misunderstood Podcast. See you next time. Misunderstood.